is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you are just joining us uh, this summer, we are looking uh, at selections from the first 41 chapters of the book of Psalms, what's kind of considered book one in the Psalms, in a series we've entitled, Walking with God in the Meantime, The Christian Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. And this morning we've come to chapter eight, so if you have a Bible handy or nearby, go ahead and start making your way to chapter eight. You can also find it in, on page uh, 535 of the Pew Bible in front of you. At times, it's going to be up on the screen behind me. So, And by the way, while you're finding your way to Psalm 8, I just want to let you know that so far, no one has taken me up on my offer from a couple of weeks ago that if spending meaningful time in God's Word is something you would like help with, something just you know, finding your way around the Bible, if it's something you, you'd like to do, you have no clue where to start, I would love to sit down and open God's Word together. Any of the elders would love to do that. I just want you to know I really meant it when I made that offer. So please consider that. And as you do, let's pray together as we turn to the Psalms. Lord, you are to be crowned with many crowns. You are the sovereign king of the universe. And as we open your word, Lord, we do so with hearts that desire to hear your voice and desire to be changed by you, that you might receive the glory to your name. So bless this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I got to see Cape Cod for the first time in my life. I know, these, there's a lot of firsts for Midwesterners moving to New England. That was one of them. We were there on our elders' retreat and standing on the, on the shore at Craigsville, looking out over that just vast ocean. You can't even, supposedly there's land somewhere beyond there, but it's just so massive, you can't even imagine it. And you just get this sense of how big the world is and how small you are. I mean, I'm, I'm like a little speck of sand caught between my toes in comparison to this universe. I think that sense of smallness perhaps just catches a glimpse of what David is trying to portray in Psalm 8, uh, verses 3 through 4 of our psalm. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? There's something powerful and stirring about considering ourselves in light of God's creation. 
and, and far greater than the ocean is the picture that David uses here of the entire universe. They say that you've never seen the stars until you've seen them from the sand hills of northern Nebraska where my mom grew up. You go out there, there's not a street light in 50 miles. And it's as if the universe just opens itself up to you. It's amazing. You look up at that. You cannot help but think how small and weak and insignificant we are compared to the glory of God and his creation. There's something stirring and powerful about that. Yet there's also something rather unsettling about realizing our insignificance. Why should God care about me? Compared to all of this, I'm nothing. I haven't done anything great. You know, and that, that unsettling feeling of why should God care that grows when we consider the fact that we live in a fallen world and we see the effects of the fall on us and all around us, what we've been calling the meantime. So this time between the promises of God to deliver us and establish his reign and the fulfillment of those promises, this time in between that. And the fallen world we live in exploits that weakness and that smallness. The busyness of this world keeps us spinning our tires in place, wondering if there's any redeeming purpose to this frantic daily life of traffic, work, school, kids, more traffic, more work, school, sleep, and then do the whole thing over again. Is there any purpose in it all? Just going around and around. The sin that pervades this fallen world takes advantage of our vulnerability, and it tempts us where we're most prone to wander. We feel that smallness. The religious cultures that we're surrounded with indict us daily. You're not good enough. You haven't given enough. You're not doing enough. God's not pleased with you. And why should he be? I'm so small, I can't accomplish a blessed thing for him. I'm too weak. I'm too young. I'm too old. I've sinned too much. I'm too out of touch with the world. Too insignificant. So there's this discouragement and a disenchantment that comes with realizing how little we are. And for some, there's even a something frustrating and aggravating about realizing our insignificance. I mean, why should God even care? Hasn't he got better things to do? You know, it's interesting. You look at how Job asks a, a very similar question to the one that David asks in Psalm 8. Job 7, verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I've sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? So in other words, if I'm really that insignificant, then why can't God just leave me alone? Why does he buy? It's like he's a cosmic bully just picking on the little, the little guy here. And so there's this frustration. But look again at how the psalmist responds to realizing his insignificance over against the glory of God. He doesn't respond in despair or disenchantment or frustration. He responds in praise. 
in praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why? Why should realizing how little we are move us to praise? I think this psalm gives us two reasons. First, because realizing our insignificance allows us to see how magnificent and majestic God really is, and so to give him the glory due his name. And second, because God has chosen to display his glory through insignificant human beings. Though this world is fallen, his purpose for creating humanity still stands and is in fact being accomplished not only despite our weakness, but actually through it. Through it. So first, humility fuels praise. When we see how small we are, we can finally see how big God is. And so humility fuels praise. This is a psalm of praise. In fact, it's the first psalm of praise in the book. Uh, and praise in the Psalms is more than just saying the expression, praise the Lord. We, we use that a lot, or hallelujah. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that phrase is actually a command. It's telling us to do something. It's saying, praise the Lord. Hey, you, do something. Praise God. Well, what's, what am I supposed to do? Well, in the Psalms, praising God is describing what God is like and declaring what he has done. So it's describing what he's like, how amazing he is in his character, his attributes, and it's declaring what he's done, celebrating his work of creation and salvation. It's almost always public, so it's something spoken or shouted or, or sung in the Psalms, and it's almost always, uh, it's almost always public, and it's almost always vocal. It's something we do together in the congregation. And it's motivated by the desire to make much of God. That's the heart underneath our praise. We want to make much of God. We want to celebrate him and bring him glory. Now, we use that phrase a lot as well, bring glory to God. What in the world does that mean? Think of God's glory as his worthy reputation. So it's... it's all that is amazing and, and beautiful and, and worthy of praise about him, his character, his deeds, his worthy reputation, that's his glory. And so to bring glory to God is to make much of him. It's to magnify him, lift him up, make him big. Not in an artificial way, like a, using a, a microscope to take something small and blow it up. It's not magnify in that sense. It's much more like a telescope. So to take something that really is massive beyond comparison and bring it into clarity so that others can see how amazing and glorious this God is, to magnify God's name. It's a heart of glory in God that motivates our praise. So take a look at the first verse and see how David does this here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then, of course, verse 9 repeats it verbatim. It begins and ends with a declaration of praise. David is praising God. He's making much of him by describing what he's like. His name is majestic 
in all the earth. And then the rest of the psalm, between 1 and 9, praises God by declaring what he's done. And we'll look at that in a little bit. God, God's name is majestic in all the earth. It is worthy of praise. And again, his name is a way of talking about his reputation. We, we hear the phrase sometimes, someone's trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to build their reputation. Well, God has a name too. And unlike any other name, his name is actually worthy of celebration throughout the entire creation. His name, Yahweh, we uh, think it's pronounced, uh, and it's marked by the word LORD in all caps in verse 1. You ever wonder why sometimes the word LORD is in all caps and sometimes it's not? When it's in all caps, that's signifying that that's God's proper name being referred to here. Yahweh, the LORD. The same name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 34, saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. So God's name represents his magnificent character, and it is worthy of praise. The problem is that we would much rather make much of our own names than of God's, uh, to fill the earth with our glory as though we were king. We're back to Psalm 2 from last week. But consider the difference. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you can't add a single hour to your lifespan. That's pretty depressing when you think about it. There's nothing you can do to add a single hour to your lifespan. Now consider the alternative. God, who in Isaiah 40 says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Realizing how small we are allows us to see how big and magnificent and worthy of praise God is. And so it moves us to praise. That's the first reason Psalm 8 gives us. The second reason uh, that realizing our insignificance moves us to praise God uh, takes up the bulk of the rest of the psalm, and it is the fact that it's precisely through human frailty that God has chosen to display his glory in creation. And David captures this in two kind of parallel pictures. Uh, verses, the second half of verse 1 through 2, and then verses 3 through 8. And if you look at the beginning of both of those pictures, so the second half of verse 1, he begins with a description of God's glory relative to the heavens. That's what we think of when we think of the grandeur of God, this amazing glory. So he says in verse 1, you've set your glory above the heavens. Then he begins the second picture with the same uh, in the same way, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and so on. So that's kind of the standard that comes to our mind. But then what's surprising is what he does after that in both of the pictures by explaining to us how God's glory and power are actually displayed preeminently through human frailty, through our human weakness, through frail humanity. The first picture in verse 2. 
As one author puts it, it's of God using the prayers of the weak to destroy his enemies. The recent revision of the NIV, I think, captures this sense well. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So the picture is small, weak, seemingly insignificant and powerless children, and it's their prayers that God's answering when he defeats his enemies. So we are insignificant compared to God's glory, but we're not insignificant when it comes to God accomplishing his purposes through us. And children, I hope you're hearing what the psalmist is saying here. There's a mighty temptation to think that I'm too young to be useful to God, and so I'll worry about those things when I grow up. In this psalm, God uses the prayers of children to break the back of his enemies. And, and babes and infants, and so it's, it's not even children here, it's your brother and sister down in the nursery that it's talking about. God wants to use all of his people, and that includes your children. It's in showing his glory through what seems small that makes us realize that it actually comes from God and not us. The second picture does something similar. We looked at verses 3 to 4 earlier, how David marvels at the fact that God's actually mindful of us and cares for us despite our insignificance. But then he does the same thing. He shows us how God's glory is displayed through humanity by taking us back to Genesis 1, where God chose not the stars as the chief display of his glory, not the mountains, not the animals, but humans. Humans to be the chief display of his glory. Seemingly insignificant, instrumental to God's plan. Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28 is echoing here in the background. One uh, author I read uh, described Psalm 8 as Genesis 1, 26 to 28 set to music. It's kind of the picture here. And it gives us, back in Genesis, it gives us God's design for humanity from the beginning. Where humans, unlike any other part of creation, were made not according to our own kind, but in the image of God. And that, you know, what that means to be made in God's image has been discussed and discussed over the centuries. But I think we can summarize it in two ways. First, it's relationship. To be made in God's image means relationship with God. So you look at Genesis 5. Adam has a son in his image, after his likeness. Same words. So it's this picture of a father-child relationship. I get all the time people telling me how much my son Joshua looks like me. That's an illustration of what this verse is talking about. There's a relationship there. So it's relationship, and second, it's representation. Royal representation, to be precise. So the king in heaven has taken people, humans, who are made just below those who dwell in the heavenly realm, below God and, and, and angels, and he has crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over all creation. Royal representation. You can hear Genesis 1 echoing in the background here, reminding us that to be human 
is to be made in God's image, to relate to him as father, and to rule creation on his behalf, not as tyrants, but reflecting his character, seeking his goals and his purposes, namely, to fill the whole earth with his glory and bring the whole of creation under his rule and blessing. That's what it means to be human in Genesis 1. That's God's vision from the beginning of time. To fill every cubicle, every conversation, every room in your house, every music lesson, every soccer game, everything, every sphere with the praise and glory of God to make much of him. And that vision still stands. That's still God's plan. Part of the beauty of Psalm 8 is that in a book that is so honest about the brokenness and trouble of this world, here we have a voice directing our hearts upward in praise to God and backward to God's vision of creation, reminding us that his plan is still intact. The fallen world that we live in and its temptations and frustrations have not derailed God's vision. And he will, in fact, be faithful to complete it. There will come a day when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will be faithful. And so, we praise God. We have both a reality in Psalm 8 and a hope. God will be faithful, and yet we still have work to do, don't we? In filling this earth with God's glory. And so we praise God. And yet, if we're honest, it's a bit wearying to consider the prospect of filling this earth with God's glory. We see the world, and it's not at all in subjection to God's rule. God's praise is not on everybody's lips, barely on mine. I spend most of my days acting more like a rebel from Psalm 2 than a royal representative Psalm 8. God's plan to fill the earth with his glory through frail humanity seems to be compromised by our weakness and our sin. So the image is distorted. The rule is corrupted. The relationship is broken. And it's interesting when we go to the New Testament and you look at the book of Hebrews how he picks up, the author of that book, picks up on this tension that we feel. When we look at our calling in Psalm 8, and, the, and then we look at the brokenness and the sin that still persists in this world. So in Hebrews chapter 2, the author quotes Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, and the royal representation of God's humanity. And then he explains in verse 8, this is Hebrews 2, 8, in putting everything under him, that's humanity there, Psalm 8, God left nothing subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, humanity. Though God has given humans authority on his behalf, the world is still fallen in sin, and God's vision seems stalled, by and large because we're not very good at what he's made us to do. We can't accomplish it. But the author of Hebrews continues in the next verse, verse 9. So we don't see everything in subjection yet, but we do see Jesus. 
who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So where Adam failed and where all humanity in Adam failed, the eternal Son of God succeeded. God took on flesh and became a new and true Adam, who did what the rest of humanity couldn't do in offering uncompromised glory to God. He did what we couldn't do, and he did it through his weakness. It was through his violent murder on a cross that he broke the back of evil and defeated sin and gives life to all who trust him. He was crowned with glory because he suffered death, glory, weakness. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone and we might be reclaimed for God's purposes. So we do have a purpose. Even in the meantime, we have a purpose. God's vision for humanity still stands, and in Christ it is now possible. God is transforming us back into that image to do what we were made to do. And so we praise God. We exalt him. We lift his name on high because he is faithful and he is displaying his glory through our weakness. And as we look ahead uh, and move forward as Westgate Church, I want us to ask, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that God can use us to magnify him and fill Metro West and New England with his glory? Or are we just gathering? You know, do, do we really see this as what we were made to do and have been redeemed for in Christ? Are we small enough in our own eyes, that God is big enough to accomplish it? Are we okay with being small so that we're able to die to ourselves and lay down our lives in loving and serving our neighbors and making much of God? Do we really see that this is what we've been made to do and redeemed for? Do we believe that Jesus and his cross are really sufficient to accomplish it. As we come to the Lord's table, let's consider anew what it means to be human and how through the gospel God makes us fully human. He restores that father-child relationship with God. He revives our mission as his royal representatives, all through the grace of God available into the gospel available to us through the gospel, the message that God actually became human. He took on real flesh, and it was broken for us. That's the picture with the bread. The human flesh of God, Jesus, God in flesh, broken. That he spilled his human blood. He had to become human to rescue humans. He became a new Adam and spilled his blood. That's the picture in the cup. This meal is a visible picture of the gospel. It's a celebration of God's grace, and it invites us to examine our lives and ask, how do they line up with the truth of the gospel? Where do I need to repent and cling once again to God's sufficient grace? 
And this, is a, this table is a family meal. It's for the children of God in Christ. So if you've placed your faith in Christ and he is all your hope, please join us in this meal. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure, I encourage you to let the elements pass this morning. And instead of partaking of the sign, turn your hearts to partake of him to whom that sign points, Jesus Christ. So as the ushers come forward for the Lord's table, let's praise God together in prayer that though we are little, we are able to make much of him. So let's pray together. Lord, we are truly humbled, truly humbled by your word, by your creation, by your magnificent glory. Keep us humbled, God, to see how brilliant you are. And keep us humbled because that's how your glory will be displayed on earth. May your gospel truly change our lives daily. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.